Hola everyone, this is Connie Morgan with another episode of the Free Black Thought Podcast. Today's guest is Mr. Kendall Qualls. Mr. Qualls is the president and founder of Take Charge, an organization committed to supporting the notion that the idea of America works for everyone, regardless of race and station in life. During our conversation, Mr. Qualls talks about his upbringing with a divorced mother and siblings in public housing projects of Harlem, New York in the late 1960s. Before middle school, Mr. Qualls was separated from the other siblings and moved in with their father in a trailer park in Oklahoma. Neither of his parents finished high school. Despite the challenges and turmoil of his early life, Mr. Qualls worked full-time to pay his way through college, served as an officer in the U.S. Army, and earned three graduate degrees. He worked his way up the ranks to become a vice president at several Fortune 100 healthcare companies. Mr. Qualls champions the principle of meritocracy and supports the notion that free enterprise and the private sector are the fastest and most equitable way to lift people from poverty to prosperity, including Black Americans. It was a pleasure to interview this narrative buster because remember... There is no such thing as a black perspective, just black people with perspectives. You're listening to the free black. Hold up, y'all. Interrupting for a moment to interject some news that came out after this podcast was edited and scheduled. Mr. Kendall Qualls and I recorded this episode in the fall of last year, and it was always scheduled to be released on 7 Feb. But it just so happened that at the end of January, a fire broke out in the Take Charge office building forcing Mr. Qualls' team to work remotely and make other obvious arrangements. And right before this episode was published, authorities have come to the conclusion that this may very well be an arson attack. An arson attack on a Black conservative nonprofit that is the only national organization promoting the return of the two-parent family and school choice in the Black community. If you feel inspired by Mr. Qualls' story and the work Take Charge is doing, please consider visiting TakeChargeMN.com that's take charge mn as in the abbreviation for minnesota.com to make a donation. They could really use it right now. Okay, back to the show. Podcast. Mr. Qualls, thank you for joining me here on the Free Black Thought Podcast today. Very excited to have you. You are a very accomplished man doing a lot of wonderful things and I can't wait to dig into that later on in the show. But first, let's just start off like we always do. Tell our audience about yourself, how you grew up, where you were raised and how that formed you and led you to where you are today. Yeah, yeah. You know, I have a qu- quite a bit of age on you, so this might take a while, so I try to keep it brief. <laughs> hey, we got but, an hour, um, an hour know, plus. <laughs> well, I was um, I was actually born in Harlem, New York, um, but I lived all over the country. My my parents, unfortunately, divorced when my father came back from Vietnam in 1968, and we moved from Fort Campbell, Kentucky, along with my four other siblings, to Harlem, New York, with my to live with my grandparents. And that's where I lived with my mom um, from first to fifth grade. In fact, when we got to Harlem, the very first day, luggage in hand, heading to our grandparents' apartment, we're literally a block away from the Apollo Theater, and we're held up in broad daylight. And I'll never forget this. I mean, I'm probably five or six years old. My mom is begging with this guy, please, mister, this is all the money I have. And some guy standing probably about five feet away, leaning up against a wall, said, lady, that, that man doesn't care if you have five kids or ten kids. You better give him all your money. Mm. That was day one. Mm. We're a block away from my grandparents' apartment and welcome to New York City. Wow. And so that's what, that's what my life was like in my early childhood, my elementary school years. I fought probably two or three days a week in elementary school, going back and forth, living in the projects. 
and it was a, it was a horrific time. I, and just, it was a dramatic change of life from living on an army base and, and then obviously living in, in the heart of what was the worst probably part of the country at the time. And, but uh, my mom could not handle all five of us kids by herself. So my father came and got me, my younger brother, to live with him in Oklahoma. He was still in the Army. He was a drill sergeant. And because he was paying alimony and child support, he was living in the trailer. Uh, and so your, your siblings are split up then at this point? Well, your siblings are split up now. My, my older brothers and sisters were getting absorbed into the street culture. Um, they were in their early, late teens. And so we were on the younger side, my brother and I, younger brother and I were on the younger side, literally, I, I was in fifth grade, my younger brother was in uh, third grade. So we, we moved with him out there. And, uh, you know, I tell people I've been called ghetto kid, trailer trash, and a, and a lot worse. Mm-hmm. But here's what I've learned about this country. Um, no matter where you start in life, you don't have to stay there for the rest of your life in this country. Now. I know, I knew at that time I wanted something very different. I didn't know how I was going to get it done, but I knew it started with an education. And so I, I uh, worked full time to pay my way through college, literally full time over 40 hours a week. And I finished in four years. Wow. So so when you were growing up and you were fighting and you you said that, I mean, you sort of, you dip, maybe dipped your toe in kind of that street culture or you just fought because you literally had to, no one else, you just had to fight and you had no interest. <laughs> Yeah. You know, this literally self-defense. I mean, you know, you got bullies and bullies only stop when you punch them in the nose. So right. it wasn't like I was I was going after it. I wanted to be aggressive or any, any, by any means. It is literally in, in New York City at that time and in probably any major city today. Bullies are attacking. And if if you don't if you don't want to get beat up and be on the receiving end every day, you got to fight to defend yeah. yourself. Yeah. And so that was my situation. And. How did you, what, what kind of jobs were you working when you paid your way through school? I did everything. I mean, literally my very, very first job when I was uh, in 10th grade was at a, vet, a veterinary clinic. I cleaned out dog cages and, you know, just, you know, just the, literally the, talk about the bottom rung of life. That's what I did. I would clean, cleaned out the cages. I was a janitor, all that. I, I, from there, I'm, you know, worked retail. Um, from, and my senior year, I, I did Domino's Pizza. I did Domino's Pizza d- delivery from senior in high school, all four years of college. And neat story about that. I'm working on my MBA at Michigan. I'm literally in my house. We had a very nice house. Literally is a mile away from Domino's Pizza headquarters. Okay. <laughs> a place where I got my start and helped pay through college. But I, I was also in Army Reserves. So I was in the Army Reserves. I was an ROTC in college. And I got commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Army Reserves when I was only 19 years old. I didn't even know that was possible. And I'm a former Army officer as well. Yeah, well, it was possible at that time because this was post-Vietnam War. And they were struggling with junior military officers. And it was called a simultaneous membership program. So I was in Army Reserves and the ROTC at the same time. And so um, basically what that did, it got me to jump past the first and second year of ROTC. And I was a junior in ROTC, but a freshman in college. Okay. Because I'd gone to basic training. I did all the different things. I just got, I just got great leadership 
training at a very, very young age. And so if you ever read the book, I think it's called Freaking, um, no, it's called Outliers. That idea of getting 10,000 hours of, of, of training or, or emphasis in anything that you do, it could be basketball, it could be music, it could be anything. I got my 10,000 hours starting at 19 when I was uh, uh, in, in leadership. Were all your mentors and and leadership guides outside of your family, or was your dad really pushing you at home as well? Oh, he was pushing all right. <laughs> my, my father was a, uh, well, like I said, he was a drill sergeant at the time. Here's the scenario with my family, it, it was, and it wasn't a good scenario. I, you know, I had a lot of resentment toward my father for abandoning our family, abandoning my mother, mm-hmm. and leaving her at the worst place at the time. All my mom wanted to be was a mother. She was the quintessential Southern woman. She never had a driver's license. She stayed at home, raised her kids. She, both of them were product of the South. And uh, I had a lot of resentment toward my dad. And my dad was all hard rocks and nuts yeah. and discipline all the time. Mm-hmm. And my mother was the nurturing you know, one, but I never had them together. Yeah, together they would have balanced out probably quite exactly. nicely, right? Yeah. That is God's design, right? But it would have been, it would have balanced out. But my uh, father was, like I said, all disciplined. He would literally like a drill sergeant. So anyway, um, if the good push and motivation was, I could not wait to get out of the house. I le- I'd left okay. uh, on my own when I was 17 years okay. old. And what came next? Did you know what you wanted to do when you were in college? Or did you just know, I got to get these degrees, I got to work hard? What did you think your trajectory was at yeah. that point? I, I didn't know. I, I, I had, I had no predicate for the corporate world. I had no predicate for, you know, military leadership other than my, my father. I knew I wanted to serve. Uh, that was one. And, um, but as I got on active duty, I started studying the business world and I had a subscription to black enterprise and that magazine, uh, as I read that each, each month, I, I just reading these stories of all these people that had successful careers in the civilian world. And I just, it's just the whole idea. If they can do it, I can do it too. And so when I was on active duty, I served as an artillery officer for five years. When I was on active duty, I went back to school again, part-time, worked full-time to part-time to get two graduate degrees. Why, why two? Why two at the same time? Well, I didn't get two at the same time. I got, I got one. I got one first that's from communication. Basically, it's human communication. And uh, I spoke with a recruiter and executive recruiters and when I was still on active duty. And he said, you know, that's that's great. But you know what? You be, really make yourself more marketable with an MBA. So I, I got a, um, a master's in economics um, from from a, a school in Oklahoma. It wasn't a top school, but, you know, it was a way that I, I thought they prepared me. I, I got my my MBA from Michigan 10 years later. So um, anyway, my thoughts were to transition out of the military because at that point, I did not want to have a a life where I moved around so much. I wanted a stable environment for my family. I wanted something very different than what I grew up with. Not just the financial security, but the the stability of a home that I could raise my family. And at that that point, and I kind of overstepped this one, Connie, but... Um, I actually got married right after uh, my first year in, in the military. My my um, my wife, my girlfriend at the time, we met in high school, and she was one year behind me. And she, 
she wind up we wind up going to the same university together, same college. She could have went to a much better school, but she wanted to we she wanted to stay together, and so she went to the same same state school that I went to, and we literally met when we were sixteen years old, and um, I got married. We got married after she finished college, one year after I did, and um, I just wanted a different life for her. And and for our family, I didn't know what was that what that was going to look like. We've been married now for thirty seven years. Well, I talk about this in my book. At first, you know, I, you know, I want again. I thought she was the person, and that that was number one. Number number two is, um, I I saw relationships, married relationships that seemed to work, and just because ours didn't in our family doesn't mean that it always has to be that way for everyone, for me personally. But, you know, I was on active duty for a year and um, boy, it was the first time I had money, the first time, and you know, I started getting a lot of attention from young ladies and and um, I called off the marriage. I said, you know, maybe we ought to wait. And I broke, yeah, I did. I broke a heart and it was selfish. And I'm, I'm admitting, you know, the, the selfishness of it, the self-centeredness of it, the greed and all of that. Um, conceitedness, I mean, all the bad things, bad character, all that. But I'll never forget this. About two or three months later, a good friend of mine, I'm out, we're out at a, at a bar club somewhere, and he said, and I'm, and I'm talking with this young lady, and this guy, I come back to him and get my drink or whatever, and he says, Kendall, you're with someone every weekend. You're never going to know when the right woman comes along. And I'm, at that point, I'm 22 years old. I'm going like, you know, that right woman did come along and I pushed her away. And so I went back to my wife, my, you know, my girlfriend at the time, begged forgiveness, you know, it took me six months to convince her and her parents. And, um, she, you know, and we, uh, reconciled and have gotten, gotten married and we've been together for 37 years. You know, um, I wasn't going to let that go because she was the right one. And, um, Anyway, I, uh, that, that we worked it out that way. So anyway, uh, long story short, I, I served five years on active duty. My, my, my wife, had that, we, we were married for seven years before we had kids. So she had her own career. She was a journalist. She's not only editor of, of a small town newspaper, but she, on weekends she was in front of the camera. She was an uh, on-camera on um, TV reporter. So I finished, I finished active duty. I just returned from Korea. So I was, you know, I served one year in Korea and my first job was in Dallas, Texas, first civilian job. And so before, before I go into that, both my father and my father-in-law were both retired career military guys. My father-in-law served in the Korean war and the Vietnam war. He was retired as a command sergeant major, highest rank for enlisted. He was in the military when it was still segregated. Yeah. Ah, Wow. And, And lived through that. And my father served 25 years. And the re- reason I'm sharing that is because both of them told me not to get out. They said, Kendall, you don't know what you're getting into. Um, the military is the only place where you can get a fair shake, a fair deal, mm-hmm. where you can get recognized on your merit. Yeah. Because both of them lived through the Jim Crow South. And they remember that you can't, tr- they, their, their life experiences was that you couldn't trust white people and that they'll, they won't let you be successful. Right. And so I did it anyway, and they were pleasantly, positive, you know, pleasantly 
surprised how well I, I did. Mm -hmm. And it says a lot about our country and how things have changed. They did not expect that. So I just wanted to preface that. But my first job coming out of the military in Dallas is a lot to do with my character and who I am today and, and why our families are still, my family's still intact and how things are going. Is someone invited me to, to church and I, I called my wife. I said, you know what? Your family friend invited me to church. You know, she's working on her master's degree, living at home, and we would meet up on weekends. Mm -hmm. She couldn't come that weekend because of the storm. There was a uh, really bad dice storm. And she said, well, whatever you do, don't join. I said, don't worry, I'm not. We weren't looking for God. We weren't looking for church. But um, it was interesting. Um, the pastor was Tony Evans. And Tony Evans is the first black pastor to get a Ph.D., from uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. Okay. So he he didn't preach; he actually taught. There's a difference between teaching and preaching. Mm -hmm. And it was and it was literally it changed my life. And uh, after a year, I got um, baptized into the Christian faith at that church. And one of the things he said again, I think it's pertinent for our conversation and where we are today. And this is during the Rodney King riots at the time. So this was obviously you know, 25, 30 years ago. And he said, look, as a country, we can settle all of this issue of race if we just live as Christians, actually, you know, through the book of Galatians, because it talks about you're, no, you're, neither, you're neither slave nor free, Greek or Jew, male or female. We're all one under the cross, mm -hmm. right? All in the same family as, as Christians. And everyone was clapping. Well, that was easy to do when like 80% of the church was black. You know, there was a lot of, there was some mix, but it was easy because you're comfortable. Yeah. Well, we've gotten series of promotions. And so I got a promotion to Tulsa, Oklahoma a year later. And we tried to find a good Bible teaching church in the black community. We just couldn't find one. Mm. And so we, we, we looked we, at the yellow pages, actually. This is <laughs> pre-internet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and... And we looked for a pastor that graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary, and it was in a predominantly white part of town, actually, where we in the close in the community where we live. And we walk in, there's 500 people. I'm looking at the people through the windows and sitting on like, whoa, 500 people here, and we're the only tall people in here. <laughs> <laughs> but we we went we went anyway, and you know, long story short, we were bombarded by our friends and family saying, what are you doing? You know what? Are you abandoning your culture? You can't, you can't go there. They're going to treat you bad. They're going to treat you terribly, blah, 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 blah. Well, what, we what, did, anyway. what did your family, you, you weren't, you didn't grow up in a, in a spiritual or religious home, right? No, we didn't. But we suddenly didn't. when you were going to church, everybody had an opinion about what the right church was. Well, it was that, and, and but uh, but also my wife's family. My, okay. my wife's family did grow up in the church, okay. and they grew up in a predominantly black church. But at the end of the day, if friends and family is like, hey, look, we don't cross the line, man. You don't cross the line. I'm going, like, what world are you living in? Look, uh, um, you know, there there is deep-seated resentment in our community, in the black community, toward white people for, you know, our station in life. And a lot of it has to do with what they've been told ever since they were kids, mm -hmm. predominantly. Because they're not, they haven't experienced anything like our parents experienced right. in the Jim Crow South. Right. Right. So a lot of this stuff is really handed down through folklore. Mm -hmm. But for me, it was, I'm looking for a place where I can grow spiritually. Again, I'm not talking about just the emotional part of it, the intellectual part of 
our Christ, of the Christian faith and what this stuff all means. And that pastor and those people were just, they treated us just great. Um, it, it, it was, it was shocking to, for our family and friends to see how well they treated us. Yeah. Um, and in fact, even more so from a Christian application through the members, the, the church attendees, more of a Christian faith and walk than we would see in our own communities oftentimes. So anyway, we did it and we didn't care. I thought, look, I don't care if the people are green, white, blue, it doesn't matter. As long as the, the word is being taught, the biblical word is being taught in a way that I'm growing spiritually. And so people got it and we did our own thing. We, we, we were only 27, 28 years old, um, no kids at the time. And um, there are people from that church 30 years later are still personal friends of ours. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. And so as we started moving it and, you know, we've had pastors like Max Licato, um, a prolific Christian author, um, as one of our pastors when we moved. Um, Joel Stoll used to be president of Moody Bible College. So we just had some great, I think from a Christian word, discipleship, great uh, training and leadership in our faith. And as we started having kids, we raised them that way. Mm-hmm. And, and we didn't think anything of it. My career was, you know, was was skyrocketing up. I became a, a director. I got promoted to the home office. And here's this neat story. I, I'll try to summarize it really quick. So I got promoted to the home office as a junior marketer in the home office in New Jersey, mm-hmm. right? And with, I'm with a major um, healthcare company. And I get promoted as a junior marketer, then a product manager, then a product director. I mean, literally as a a year later, and so this is four years of marketing, and now I'm the group director of an entire billion-dollar brand. Yeah. I have a $90 million budget, and I'm an hour away from Harlem, where we were held up yeah. as a kid, mm-hmm. literally an hour away mm-hmm. on my 35th birthday, yeah. 30 years previously. And, and you know, this stuff is, it's only stuff that you can, you know, you, this happens in this country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so my, my career is doing well. My, we, we have, we have, five, we have four kids. My wife and I, we have four kids I mean, right back to back yeah. to, you know, 18 months, two years back to back. There's a gap. We, we wind up, we wind up um, adopting one of our, our children, our youngest one we adopted. Okay. And um, we, we're living, we're living our lives and, and we, do, we decided to do something radical at the time because we want our kids to have a continuity of their education it's hard to do when you're moving frequently, but we also want the high academic standards as well as high character standards. Right. We want them to have A plus education and A plus character training. So we homeschooled them. Um, Ooh, OG black homeschoolers. You're one of those. Yeah. Yeah. Homeschool them pre-internet. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Props to you. And then when the internet came in and we were like, this is great. This is wonderful. <laughs> But they're all doing well. We, you know, um, the kids are doing well. They've graduated college. They're doing fine. They, you know, we have one that's married. And they have, they just had their first child. We have, we're, we're grandparents oh, now with a, with a four month old, and he's just great. But anyway, that that's 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 it. That's a little bit about my back. Okay, so you you climb. Oh, and by, by the way, one one last kind. Um, so I'm I, I live in Minnesota now, and. Um, you know, I'm not a native here, but we've been here about 10 years. It's a great state. And um, I got recruited to run for governor last year. And 
was very close out of seven candidates. I got, I was the last one to get in only four months of campaigning and I'm battling one-on-one with the last contender to be the nominee for the Republican party. Mm -hmm. There's a caveat there that we don't get into the nuances. I could have got the nomination. I, I decided not to. Because uh, I didn't want to have this person on my ticket with me as lieutenant governor. Ah, okay. That was un- that would undermine the, my character, undermine my brand, and I chose not to have him on the ticket, and it wind up going to my opponent. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, uh, well, fortunately, unfortunately, he he wind up losing to um, the uh, sitting governor, the Democrat, um, by seven points. And uh, now people that they see the. And, and not only just by losing by seven points, and typically all the other all the other candidates on the ballot typically will lose at the same level. Mm-hmm. All of them fared better than he did. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. And it's talking about boy. So across the state, um, there is more interest in me staying engaged, staying involved because the, the people feel that we would have a different outcome if I was. Um, if I was at the top of the ticket. Was that your political debut? Just boom, going to run for governor? Or had you done mo- local, smaller election stuff? I've done a smoke. Lo- lo- I'm sorry, smoke. I've <laughs> done local, smaller elections. Um, but I got endorsed to run as, for Congress um, from my district uh, the two years previously. And look, I've never wanted to get involved in politics, but things are getting so drastic and so weird in our country. Uh, I just felt obligated to get involved. Yeah. I really did from my military service, from the, the trajectory of my life, from my parents' life, and just and it's it's just it's almost God, you know, directed. I mean, the person that's in, in our in our district next door in my district. So I live in the western suburbs of Minneapolis. In Minneapolis is Ilhan Omar, mm-hmm. who's an immigrant to this country, literally saved her family's life. Yeah. And she's calling the country systemically racist. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And, and instead of gratitude uh, about you know the nature of her her circumstances, there's contentment. And you know I, I have an issue. I have a very and how how would she know anything about systemically racist? She's not you know she's not a um, descendant of American black slaves, so she doesn't know the transition. So anyway, long story short, I got involved and helped correct this narrative. Um, the country did used to be systemically racist. It's not today. And the disparities we have today are not due to systemically racism. Anyway, it's like the, the majority of them. Majority of disparities we have today are not due to that. They're, they're due to what we have done in our own culture is created this pandemic of fatherless homes. So you- Today, you're, you know, you're a conservative guy, you have traditional values, and that's what you're trying to promote and project onto society. And I can tell from your story, right, you've always had kind of a, whether you realized it or not, a conservative approach, you know, like you're going to work hard, you're responsible for yourself, that kind of thing. Uh, But did you actually identify that way as a younger man? Uh, Did you say, I'm Democrat, Republican, I'm conservative, I'm liberal, or whatever? When did you identify like you do today? Yeah. Uh, so first of all, um, I, I identified that when I was 18 years old when I, and I, and I'll explain how that, how I got there consciously. Okay. But unconsciously you define, you define me as a conservative. Those used to be normal American values. <laughs> You're going to work hard and pay. 
I mean, you, you, I, 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 it kills me. That's yeah. the, what is a pretty conservative? No, they're not. Right. Yeah. But you want something, you go out and work and you pay, you pay for it. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. have children, you take care of them. Right. Oh my gosh, the, <laughs> the fact that we're defining this as conservative is the reason why we define it conservative because the culture has moved so far left. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So far left. Um, I'll tell you, I, I want to give you an idea. In my lifetime, we have moved from 80% two-parent families in the black community to 80% fatherless homes without one national initiative to reverse the trend. Mm-hmm. Not one. Yeah. Our, our nonprofit is, is, is taking on this initiative and we're going to make this happen. We're going to get our culture back to its roots. The black community used to be rooted in faith, family, and education. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Getting a better education for their kids. Today, we lost all three. Mm-hmm. And it's through this government dependency. Yeah. And this is not a conservative, Republican, Democrat, or anything. This is, this is who we were. And now we're not. And as I put it analogous to if we were an American bald eagle, the, the, the American grizzly bear, we would be on the endangered species list and they would be galas and bumper stickers, save the black family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right next to free Tibet on a bumper sticker, or you would see on a bumper, you would mm-hmm. see free the black family. But the reason we're not is because of politics is because of politics. It's shameful, absolutely shameful. I mean, the, 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 these progressive black leaders in our own communities own this. And obviously, the, you know, the political system owns this as well. So we're, we're going to start this movement around because I go into our black communities and I talk to women. I said, look, God did not intend for women to raise children alone. No. And all their heads nod up and down, mm-hmm. but they don't know what to do next. Yeah. These issues are not Republican, Democrat. They're right and wrong cultural issues. So you ask the question, how did I get here? So I remember we only had one TV in our house. Um, and so we, before we can watch anything after dinner, my father had to watch ABC News with Peter Jennings. And that came on, then you had to watch that first. And then we, we could watch whatever you want. And I remember watching, this was when Ronald Reagan was, was president. And Ronald Reagan had cut spending across the board, like by 5%. You know, this is, we're going to cut government spending 5%. Yeah. And there were, and there was, there was on TV, Jesse Jackson in Harlem. And I didn't know it at the time. I didn't know the congressman at the time. I was only 18 years old, but it was, um, Charlie Rangel. And they were in Harlem and they were complaining that Ronald Reagan was racist. Ronald Reagan didn't care about poor people didn't care about black kids because they're, you know, the, and he said the number one thing they need right now in Harlem is that these women, they don't need less money in their, you know, welfare check. They need more money because they're mm-hmm. starving kids in Harlem. Well, he's lying. There's no starving kids in Harlem. And I, you know, I, and I used to travel back there every summer to meet, you know, to, to meet with my mom during the summer breaks of school. Yeah. So it wasn't just like, a, you know, I lived there and never went back. I went back all the time. Mm-hmm. And because if there are kids that are starving, the other moms would take these kids and, and feed them. Mm-hmm. And, if, and if there's a mom that's doing that, you know, where their kids are not getting anything to eat, they're taking their food stamps and they're using it for drugs. That happened all the time. Yeah. 
And I said, nice. the number one thing is not what they need is more money. The number one thing they need is they need more police officers, more cops. The thugs are running the streets. Mm-hmm. They used to do this every month. When I say they, I'm talking about the, the drunks that hang out on the corner, the thugs, all of these guys. Every month when, the, when these moms used to get their paychecks, either their paychecks, their social security checks, or either their wealth, these guys would roam around and they would basically hold up these women, usually they're older women, you know, the elderly moms and grandmothers, then they would go for the younger women. But these guys, they, they would they would like prey on the most vulnerable and steal their money. Mm-hmm. And I would see this as a young child, as five and six year old, look and just and listen to my mother, my grandmother, my aunt talk, okay, now you know, take it out of your purse and hide the money, you know, on their person in private areas because of what these guys would do. Yeah. And so for me, that that sense of, I could not do, I could not defend them at that age. Okay. And I feel obligated to do it now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We have have let the loud mouths in our culture, we've let the thugs in our culture rule the culture. It's time is over for this. So yeah, you've you've kind of transitioned. Well, I well I'm going to find out how much you've transitioned. You you climbed the corporate ladder and you're killing it there. But now you're you have a a nonprofit and you're doing this other work. When did you transition? Tell us about take charge and what you're doing now. Yeah, so I, I ran for Congress. I didn't win. Although, so here's what, here's what happened. So this was I live in a district that was been. Um, ruled or not ruled, but basically um, I I live in a district that has been represented by the Republican Party for over 50 years Mm -hmm. in the western suburbs of Minneapolis. Trump becomes president. And so in his midterm, the the, the 10-year incumbent lost to this Uber. In fact, it's so ironic. He lost to this, you know, trust fund candidate, um, not because... People love this Dean Phillips. They, it was a anti-Trump vote. Yeah. And, and now this Dean Phillips, he's the one that's running against Biden in the Democrat Party. Oh, yeah. He's the, okay. That, mm-hmm. that guy from Minnesota. He's the one that, that won that seat. I ran against him to retake the seat. Trump is still obviously president. Again, it was more anti-Trump than we love Dean. But I, I didn't win. I um, lost by 10 points. But in that district, I was the I was the Republican that got more votes than any other Republican. Mm-hmm. I got more at five percent more votes than President Trump, five percent more votes than the senatorial candidate, and they said, "Kendall, your message resonated. It just didn't resonate enough." Yeah. Would you, could, would you consider sticking around? And so I said, "Well, you know, I'll start. We'll start this nonprofit, and we'll see if my message does resonate." And it was take charge, take charge of your, your life. Take charge mm-hmm. of your family. Take charge of your community. We're Americans. Act like it. Yeah. You don't need permission to do these things of taking charge of your life. Mm-hmm. Stop waiting for permission. And and one of the things that really got me upset was this narrative, this false narrative of systemic racism. The second thing is this, this issue that politicians have been using Black Americans for 50 years. I was sick of it. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started recruiting. I didn't recruit people. from. They came. Mm-hmm. Look, guys, we didn't used to live like this. Yeah. We didn't used to live like this where our kids are growing up with no fathers. They're mouthing off the teachers. 
no one's talking about what's happening with the police. You know, you know, you go to the police and, and you you fight them back. You try to steal their gun and or you you run off. Um, all these other things. No, look, we didn't. That was not the norm for who we were. Yeah. And so my my sense is, look, we we need to do this restoration in our own culture. We've got problems in our we're culture in crisis. Mm-hmm. And so I've been in healthcare for thirty years. Here's what I can tell you about our culture from a health standpoint. We're we're the only culture where homicide is the number one cause of death for our pediatric patients. Yeah. For for kids ages one to eighteen, it's not you know, you know, childhood disease, cancer, heart disease, it's a homicide. Mm-hmm. That's us. We're the number one in, in, in STDs, number one in HIV, new cases of HIV. We're number one in diabetes, number one in obesity and heart disease. Mm-hmm. We're the only culture. Those are symptoms right. of a larger problem. Mm-hmm. It's not because we have a systemically racist healthcare system like that's being portrayed today. Mm-hmm. And so um, our, our my focus has been recruiting Black Americans to help us spread this message of restoring faith, family, and education, getting back to who we were as a culture, and before we before we started depending on government for help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, one of the things I share, and I'm amazed how many young Black people don't know this. In 1968, still, I mean, that's not too long ago. Eighty percent of Black families were two parent families. And then the federal government introduced a program called Aid to Family with Dependent Children, what we call welfare today. And the only way you can get that, unless you have no father or husband living in the home. Right. Incentivized single motherhood. It's the first time in American history where we incentivize women to have children outside of marriage. Mm-hmm. And when you define it like that, you think, man, that sounds amoral. Right. Because it is. <laughs> because it is amoral. Mm-hmm. They, they used to have people going around homes. That was a job to go around people's houses and to inspect to make sure there was no adult male living in the house. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we did that for, for the, you know, the first 10 years. And then we started de-emphasizing the shame of that. Cause it used, it used to be, Hey, look, it wasn't the best thing for women, not just to be shameful, but it's not the best thing for kids. And now we have 50 years of data 50 years of data that shows what happens to kids from fatherless homes, high incarceration rates, low academic performance, high depression rate, the number, you know, the, the number one um, reason or number one uh, profile when you look at rapists is that there are 83% of them from fatherless homes. These young kids are more vulnerable to physical, physical and sexual abuse. We have 50 years of data around this. So and, this and- is not... And to be clear, too, I mean, fatherlessness is is most common in the black population. But anybody without a father, black, white or otherwise, these are the people that are doing what you're saying. They're the rapists. They're the ones in prison. It affects absolutely. everybody. Mm-hmm. In fact, what I'm warning my, my friends in the white community and Hispanic community, they're coming for your neighborhood next. Mm-hmm. Where, where the white population is in fatherless homes is where we started in 1968. Mm-hmm. So these behaviors that, that I just mentioned, you're right. They, they know no ethnic group. Right. This has to do with the, the dynamic of kids growing up without fathers, and it doesn't matter what race they are. 
Mm-hmm. In fact, in fact, Connie, this is something that we started last year with our nonprofit. It's called the Fatherhood Impact Award. We we launched to recognize fathers on Father's Day, and we published these guys in the, in the local newspaper, half page ad in the newspaper, because the United States has the l- largest percentage of children that grow up without a father in the home in any country in the world. Mm-hmm. Largest percentage, uh, by far, not just black Americans. The right. United States has the far largest, the, any country in the world times three. And there's when I say that to people and I speak, everyone gasps. Right. So the reason why you gasp, because you don't know, this data is five years old. And the reason why we don't know is because you can't fix a problem if you don't know about it. We, we have a progressive left that has a disdain for what they call the patriarchy. Mm-hmm. They don't want it fixed and they like it just the way it is. Mm-hmm. What, what specifically is take charge doing to like put the family back together? Is it more of a messaging nonprofit where you're, you're going out and you're speaking to people and you're changing minds and giving guidance that way? Or are you, you know, building youth centers or, you know, wh- what exactly yeah. are you doing? Yep. So we, we are a transformational organization. So we don't tutor, mentor, and there's tons of organizations that do that. That's the symptom of the problem. And that's, that's the symptom of, of the problem that we'll never fix. We'll never fix it by dealing with symptoms. So we're starting at the root cause, changing minds, changing behaviors. Mm-hmm. So we're messaging around it. We're recruiting uh, adults to help um, spread that message in our community through speaking engagements um, on our website you'll see this short little video vignettes that we've put together we have the largest video library in the country of black americans that denounce black lives matter denounce critical race theory but also we promote the importance of getting married before children um, the importance of education the importance of faith family and education and getting back to the basics Mm-hmm. We have former game bangers all the way up to corporate attorneys um, and, and everybody in between that are part of this movement. Mm-hmm. We've only been around for two and a half years. We have over 50 volunteers and um, we want to grow this nationally um, because the vast majority of black Americans are with us in our thinking. We want the vast majority and we've done the polling to to to, to quantify it. The vast majority of black Americans believe that the federal government should incentivize two parent marriages instead of single parent homes. Mm-hmm. And the vast majority of black Americans believe that public schools are not doing a job of preparing their children to be proficient in math and reading and to have a successful life. They want school choice. Right. And we've done it for two consecutive years and not one black organization are promoting those two things, two parent families and school choice. Not the NAACP, not Black Lives Matter, not the Urban League, mm-hmm. not the Congressional Black Caucus. The only organization that's doing that is Take Charge. Yeah. Let's let's talk about your book a little bit. Uh, that's going to actually be released on my birthday, I noticed, December oh, wow. 5th, right? Uh, and Prodigal Project, Hope for American Families. I think what's in the book is probably a lot of what you've been saying here on the show, but uh, why should people pick it up and what are you exploring? Yeah, you know, so here's why we should pick it up. I mean, this is really getting back to basics more than anything else. 
we're not looking, look, hey, let's go back to the 50s. or We're not looking at anything like that. But here's what I can tell you. If, you're, if you like sports, and this is analogous to any coach, any coach that comes in to take over a team that's been poor performing, and one of the th- first things they do is we need to get back to the basics of the game, the fundamentals. Mm-hmm. So this, again, what Take Charge is about is getting back to the fundamentals. Mm-hmm. Every culture in the world, including ours, started out with two-parent families. Right. That was not the, the exception. That was not privilege. That was the norm. Right. And we need to teach our children because they're not getting it today. They're not getting it at home. They're not getting it in churches. They're not getting it at schools. They're definitely not getting it in public schools. Graduate from high school. If you want to have children, that's great. Get married first, then have kids and take care of them. Um, you know, divorce, all that stuff happens. That's, that's life. But you don't start out in life with, you know, with kids not having a father or a baby. The term baby daddy, baby mama, believe me, our ancestors are rolling in their graves over this. Right. So anyway, the, the book, The Prodigal Project, if you know the story of the prodigal son, mm-hmm. he, leaves, he leaves his wealthy father, wants his money, he goes off, he blows it, and now he's working, literally working to survive, and he's in a pig trough, and he's saying like, you know what, if I just go back, to, back home to my father and just beg him to be a worker, I don't have to be his son anymore, I know that even his employees live better than I do right now. And this mm-hmm. is ta- this is a story about going back to the basics of what our father taught us, and re- realizing that we can turn our lives around and turn our culture around. And I talk about how I've been able to do that in my life, because I and I and I mean this in all sincerity is that look, I'm not special, I'm not exceptional, I'm not. Um, we live in an exceptional country. I serve an exceptional God. You know, I have an average IQ on my best days. And if I can do this, anyone can. And I want to encourage people in our community that we can do this. We, we can do this. Our, our children deserve better and, I, and, and the women of our culture deserve better. Do you find that you're able to, to make more ground with boys or girls or men or women? Um, both. You know, it's amazing. You know, Women hear, hear this story and, and, and they love it, but they're always skeptical. Well, he's a Republican. What the, I'm not, you know, they got to get past that barrier because they've been told all these things since they're kids. The men love it because they, they what well, that's the kind of man I want to be, but I don't know how. We've got a lot of learning to do. Right. And I got, I, and we have some great ideas on how to do this. And, you know, if there's time, I'd love to share one of them, but um, great ideas how to do this. And it doesn't. And, and this is taking a page book out of Booker T. Washington. Mm-hmm. So this is not new. Yeah. These are, tri- these are tried and true things that have happened in, 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 our, in the worst part of our history that um, we, we can make happen in steroids today. We got time. You said you had an idea that you, that yeah. you wanted to share. Yeah. Let's set it so, off. You know, so when I was in high school, when I was in high school, there used to be vocational education in high school at the same time. Today, for whatever reason, they took those out of high school. Now kids... If they want to get vocational in the, into the trades, they have to do this after high school. And, and it usually is that tuition is, is, you know, a significant tuition, much like it is going to college. So my thoughts are, hey, look, we need to start a private high school, ninth through 12th grade, 
focused just on the trades for both boys and girls. But, um, and now the trades have become something so marked. We have a shortage of people going into the trades. We, we, today we probably need, we need less people graduating from college with a history degree or, or yeah. ethnic studies degree. <laughs> we need people graduating with electronics, mm-hmm. you know, certification. Mm-hmm. Well, here's what this organization has done. Again, I'm, 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 this is not my original idea. This is something that's already been tried and true. Where we take these kids and we purchase some dilapidated homes and blighted neighborhoods that seen better days. And we have these kids renovate these homes working alongside, you know, professional contractors. And they're teaching them how to do the electrical plumbing and the plumbing and the electrical wiring, you know, fixing roofs and all this stuff. And they're working on that ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th grade. When they graduate from high school, they have enough certification to earn middle-class wages. Yeah. And what some of these organizations have done is they got, they've partnered with banks in town to get low interest loans. So these kids can purchase the homes that they've been renovating over the last three to four years. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So not only do you have wage earning, you know, family wage earning, you know, salary, where you're starting 18, 19 years old, and it's only going to go up from there. Right. Now you have a home that you can afford, that you, you've built with your own hands, that you've been literally renovated with your own hands. You can start a family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's how you do it. Yeah. It's, it's the fastest way from poverty to prosperity in the country. Yeah, that's a, that's a great idea. And my husband and I, we both have college degrees. We have three small children, so it'll be a long time before we're talking about college or trade school or anything else, but we are totally dis- disenfranchised from the university system. And uh, we're going to be homeschooling our kids, even though we weren't homeschooled. Obviously I'm agreeing with a lot of what you're saying. And I think what we're going to tell our kids is like, look, if you want to go to college, we're not going to yell at you. We're not going to tell you, no, you can do whatever you want. You're a grown person, but we're not paying for your university. What we, what we will do is we'll pay for you to get a trade And then you can have a trade that you can use to pay your way through university if you then decide. And it can be whatever trade you want. You want to be a plumber? Great. You want to be a hairdresser? Fine. You want to go to barber school? I don't care. Uh, But I think I totally agree with you that the trades are... When I I was in high school over 10 years ago, we had a million college recruiters come talk to us. There's posters all over the wall. Go to college, go to college, go to college. I never heard from anybody from a trade school. I barely even right. knew what trade school was. I didn't know anything that it was an option. You know, like I knew there was a way to become these jobs that didn't, inv- that, to have these careers that didn't involve university, but I didn't really know how to go about it. And yeah. nobody talked about it. Our, our school counselors did not. That was not a thing. Only if a kid brought it up, if a kid said, hey, I want to be a plumber, then of course they'd be like, okay, let's help you. But if you didn't have any idea what you wanted to do, the trades were never really presented as an option. Well, like I said, in my high school, and this just wasn't mine. This was, this was again, with the high school in the 80s. It was no, you had 10th graders going off campus to the, to the vocational education department. So when they graduated high school, they were already ready. Yeah. That means, look, we need to make sure people understand you're not a second class citizen because you don't have a college degree. Oh, you're not. Right. There's other pathways to be successful in this country. And even, even so important is that the trades are the, is the, probably one of the fastest ways to become an, an entrepreneur, a, a business mm-hmm. owner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Than being a 40 year old college degree working in a, in, in a cubicle in a big company. Right. Right. 
So um, anyway, that, that's that's one that's one pathway, and and um, I, I think it's, it's a great way for for young people to get started and, and turn a course and, and help turn our culture around. Literally, in five to ten years, you can turn a whole community around, fixing bad neighborhoods, and getting homeowners in and starting families. Right. Absolutely. Okay, I have one more question for you that I've asked actually other guests, at least one other guest that we've had on the show, if not a couple, uh, and then we'll get into the speed round question and close it out here. But, you know, you talk about faith as being one of those cornerstones and something that the the black population in America has has lost or stepped away from or, you know, like your, like your book title, The Prodigal Son, right? But, you know, according to polling data, black Americans still believe in God at very, very high levels. They still identify as Christian at very, very high levels, higher than any other demographic um, in America and more than any other westernized country. And so, you know, I guess people aren't practicing what they're preaching. What's that, in your opinion, what is that disconnect? Because if you go, if you go and you ask the gangbanger, are you an atheist? Most of them are going to say, absolutely not. I believe in God. (laughs) Well, then why are you living your life this way? Why do you think that is? Well, we, we have a disconnect and, and here's the disconnect. And it's one of the reasons why I didn't want to get involved in church and all that stuff. I didn't think I needed it. Um, if, you're, if you're familiar with a guy named Vody Bachman, he's got a great book, Fault Lines. Yep. Read it. Mm-hmm. He, once, he once said the problem we have in our, in our, in a black community with our churches, less than 17% of pastors have a seminary degree. Ooh, so yeah. you, you get a lot, you get a lot of guys that, have a calling and they have an inch deep of knowledge of the Bible. If you only have an inch deep knowledge of the Bible, you can only teach a half an inch. Yeah. And so we have a lot of things that we have a lot of buildings that look like churches, but they're not in Christ. Okay. Mm -hmm. So Obama's Obama's pastor, Jeremiah Wright is a good example. Mm -hmm. There's tons of little Jeremiah Wrights all over our black community. They're not teaching Christ. They're not mm-hmm. teaching Bible. They're having, I don't know, a show. They're having something. They have a good choir. They have all they have all the trap. And unfortunately, a lot of people that have grown up in our communities and these churches, that's what they think church is. Mm-hmm. That's what they think Christianity is. Mm-hmm. And they don't know. Because I right. I thought that that's what I thought it was. Mm-hmm. I didn't want anything to do with it. And it wasn't until I went to uh, Pastor Tony Evans church and understood what it was all about and we have we have a whole community of our culture that they know there's a god they know there's faith and they want that but they're not getting it and they're from their communities and they're from their leaders and and their so-called pastors right yeah that 17 percent stat i don't remember that from the book that's devastating <laughs> 17 only 17 percent actually have deeply studied the Bible, at least in a formal capacity, of course, we can all study. In a formal capacity, exactly. Right. right. And, and, you know, and and the reason why that's important, and if you ever listen to Tony Evans and, and, and Bodhi Bachman, I'm sure he does it. Because the, the original text is in Hebrew, and language makes a difference. And the significance of why are these words powerful and meaningful to this, this particular culture, and how is it relevant for you today? Mm-hmm. And if you don't know that original text, if you don't know what it's, what is translated to and from the Greek into the Greek and now in English and be able to explain that to people 
and the history of, of these things um, and why the why the, the Jewish people, especially now what they're going through and why why the, it's so important is that God, God, you know, he planned on blessing the entire world, not just the Jewish people, mm -hmm. but he was doing it through the Jewish people. Right. They were the conduit for the rest of us. Mm -hmm. and, and so to understand all that, you, you need a, you need someone that have studied this. And, and if they haven't, they're just giving good sermon good because they sound good. Yeah. Yeah. They've got the flair and they've, they know when to raise their voice and they know when to stomp their foot or whatever. That's right. right. It, it, it's all style and no substance. <sighs> well, now I, we could take this off. We could go for another hour just talking about that alone, but I, I want to wrap it up here and keep it, keep it on our, our time schedule. Yep. So let's, yep. Let's move on to the 10 speed round questions, and then it'll, I'll give you the floor once again to share okay. with us your final thoughts. Are you ready for, for your quick quick 10 questions? I am. All right. Mr. Walls, number one, should the United States return to the gold standard? Uh, I, don't, I don't have enough information to answer that. I don't know. Is Rachel Dolezal a bad person or misunderstood? R remind me who she is. She's the gal who was pretending to be black she was in washington state and then it was discovered that she was actually a white lady mm -hmm. no no yeah okay now i know who she is she's the one that was head of naacp in washington yes yeah yeah okay i know exactly who she is you know what here's the thing i don't know i know this is a speed question you're going to do some editing here's the thing in our country today we talk about systemically racist black folks used to pretend they were white Right. So they wouldn't get some. Now people are pretending they're black. Are you kidding me? We can't be systemically racist. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What, what a country we live in. If people want to be black today. Right. Right. Yep. It's a solid point. And, you know, it's a speed round of questions. But if you want to, you know, take your time and answer a question, that's totally fine. Yeah. Yeah. I got it. I, I had to elaborate on that one. <laughs> Number three, should the United States keep daylight savings time? No. Who would play you in a movie? Oh, man, it has to be Denzel. I can't think of anyone else. <laughs> Is kneeling during the national anthem an appropriate form of protest? No. What's a movie you like that everyone else hated? I, 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 let's get back to that one. Black History Month, yay or nay? Nay. What's the biggest misconception about you? Um... That I am trying to be white, but you you can't. I look I, when I look in the mirror. When I look at my, I'm not confused. There's a black man staring back at me. <laughs> you can still be black and proud and everything else, and be have high ideals, be a, and love America and everything else. My ancestors fertilized the, this 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 country with the, not only their blood and sweat tears, they literally did, mm -hmm. and we should be honoring that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, Absolutely. so I, I have no qualms about who we are who we are. Being anti-white does not make you, you know, more black. Right. Should churches, including mosques, synagogues, et cetera, remain tax exempt? Yes. Jordan or LeBron? Jordan. And to go back, is there a movie you like that everybody else seemed to hate, got bad reviews, but you, you thought it was great? Oh, um, I, I thought it was funny. It was a funny movie. So you can, again, you can edit this. I can't remember the name of it. It's just... Oh, geez. 
it, was, it had these all these black characters in it, and it was like a kung fu movie. And they had a character in there called Show Enough. Okay. <laughs> um, you got you have to look. Uh, gee, you have to look it up. We'll do. We'll put we'll put it in the in the show description. Link it up so people can check it out for themselves. Most people, yeah, it's, it's hard to find. It's hard to find one that um, people didn't like that or bad reviews. And that was your ten questions. So you got through them all and pretty quickly. Okay. So even right. even with all elaborating right. a little bit, you still were pretty fast. Uh, yeah. Do you have any final thoughts? Things you want to plug, promote? We talked about your book. We'll link that. I know it's available for pre-sale, right, on Amazon yeah. right now. Uh, yeah. So we'll we'll include a link to that. Um, but actually, by the time this publishes, it will already be out. So that'll be a good thing. People can just pick it up mm -hmm. right then and there. Anything else you want to say? Yeah, you know what? We, we live in a country, and and I and I believe I believe in this concept that just because the way things are doesn't mean that they always have to be that way. Mm -hmm. Things change cultures change and you can be on the forefront of making that happen or standing by and watching it happen. Mm -hmm. I choose to be on the forefront of making it happen and making it happen for a good reason. Restoring families, putting a situation where our kids are growing up with a mom and a dad at home. I don't know who can be against that. Yeah. And, and to promote that and get that out there. Um, it is all about um, promotion and um, awareness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I, we don't refuse to stop until we see a significant change in our culture and uh, heading in this, this direction. Absolutely. Mr. Qualls, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the work that you do. Um, your organization right now is Take Charge Minnesota, right? But you're going you're gonna to take it national eventually, correct? Yes, we're going to take it nationally. We are taking it nationally. It's, you know, we only called it Take Charge Minnesota because that's where we were and someone else had to take charge of the logo. So right. um, it, it is a national. We're going to be expanding in Michigan next year. Awesome. Awesome. So good to hear. Thanks again. And when you expand, we'll have to have you come back on and talk about what progress has been made. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you, Connie. Take care. The number you have dialed. You're listening to the Free Black Thought Podcast.